My name is Tony Diekman. I'm a site pastor here, and it's my privilege this morning to uh, share God's word with you as we start this series uh, that we've titled You Pick, where we ask you to pick the sermon series that we're going to teach through June and what were those topics. And we gave you a list of 16 choices uh, back on Easter Sunday to vote and say, what are the, what are the five topics that you would love for us to teach through uh, during the month of June? And you selected those topics, and the number one selection across all four sites, every site picked this one as number one, and that was One Nation Under God. Well, that's not what was titled, but it was how do we live as Christians? And are we Democratic? Are we Democrats or are we Republicans? Which, which one are we? And it's like, so we want to teach through that, not just for a weekend. And it just so happened we had this series already queued up. And so we thought we would still teach that in July. We would teach this idea of what it means to live as a Christian, as a kingdom, as a citizen of the kingdom of God in the United States of America. As citizens of the United States, how do we live as Christians, especially in this climate where everything seems to be so polarized, where you have people on opposite ends, and how do we engage? Do we engage in the rhetoric, or do we redeem the rhetoric? How is it that we should live as Christians? And so we'll teach that in July. But then we said, so what are the next five? And these are the five topics that made the list of the 16. God's will for me, which we will actually teach through today. Next week will be science and faith. Can these two things coexist or does one cancel out the other? Uh, does that make sense? Dealing with parent Bible contradictions. How do we make sense of things that seem to contradict each other written in the Bible? Uh, and then the fourth week is angels. What does the Bible teach about angels? I know we know what culture teaches about angels and what we see in TV and movies, what artists think about angels, but what does the Bible have to say about angels? And then finally, do my prayers change God's mind? That's a, that's a light topic, so I'm glad Mark has taken that one. So um, anyway, I'm going to tar- start talking to you today about this first one. It's God's will for my life. Actually, on the ballot, it had this heading, God's will for my life, and underneath it were these subheadings. It was, can I really know it? And how do I discover it? Those are the two things I want to address this morning as we look at God's will for our life. And so the first question I want to address is, can I really know it? Yes, you could know it. That's the answer to the first question, because that's what the Bible teaches us. God knows the plans that he has for our lives, and throughout the Bible, we read about God, but also it's a story about us. We learn about who God is, so we understand who we are. And we learn that there is a plan for our life. God has a plan for everyone's life, and you can know it. But the next question is where I really want to spend my time today, and that's how do I discover it? How do you discover God's plan for your life? If I ask you the question, does God have a plan for your life? Most of you would say, yeah, I believe he does. If I ask you this question, well, how do you know it? And do you know what it is? That's where you would probably maybe start stuttering and stammering and thinking and coming up with scripture that you've known and maybe kind of coalesce. And maybe some of you have a clear understanding of God's plan for your life. And that's amazing. This morning, we want to look at this question. How do you discover God's plan for your life? Not for my life, but for your life. Not your brother's life, not your sister's life, but your life. How do you discover that plan for your life? You know, the conventional wisdom, as we approach understanding God's plan for our life, usually goes like this. We get to these major events in our life. And we understand that God has a plan for our life. And so it's important at the right moment, at the right time in our life, we try to understand what that is. 
to better make the decision about where should I go to college, if I should go to college, and what career should I pick, what major, what if I pick the wrong major, and should I get married or should I not get married? And when we approach these decisions, we, we open up the Bible and we look for God's wisdom and we ask others and we search our own hearts and we pray and, and we really endeavor to find God's will for our life in these big major decisions. But there's something that happens in this, right? In the back of your mind, there's this little voice that says, what happens if you're wrong? What if you pick the wrong major? What if you pick the wrong career? What then? There's this worry that if we get it wrong, everything's going to be messed up. And so we really try hard. But what happens in this, what is betrayed in this, what is revealed in this kind of decision-making is this control that we want in our life. Because it's all forward thinking. If I pick the right career, then everything's going to be great for me. If I pick the right school, then everything's going to be good. I'm going to get a good job and things will go great for me in the future. That kind of decision-making, trying to understand God's will for your life, really reveals your desire to control a future that is uncontrollable. It really reveals your desire to know the future, not just tomorrow, but the next day and the next day and the next day. And so we spend a lot of time worrying, trying to make the right decisions at the right moments trying to control a future that's uncontrollable rather than trusting the God with today. Trusting God who knows our path. Trusting him with our life in the day-to-day, the everyday. Not just in the big events, but the everyday events. Jesus says this in Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount as he's talking to these people that have gathered around to hear his teaching. Jesus says this, and in my Bible it says, don't worry. That's the heading. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what your body will wear or what are about your body. Is not life more important than food or the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Do they sow or reap or store away in barns? And yet, Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And then he goes on to say, look at the the flowers in the field. I tell you, they are more elegant. They are more finely dressed than Solomon could have ever imagined. And he goes on to say, for The unbelievers are worrying about all these things. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Those that do not believe run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And for those of you that are worriers, you're going, I have to worry about tomorrow because that's my job. If I don't worry about it, who will? And those words seem so strange 
Don't worry about what I'll wear, where I'll go, where I'll eat, where, who I'll marry. Don't worry about those things. Jesus is saying, no, you're getting me wrong. It's not that you shouldn't be concerned about these things. In fact, your heavenly Father knows you need them. He's concerned about them. In fact, he's concerned about you. He's saying there's a wrong order here. Right before this section, he's teaching on storing up treasures in heaven rather than like putting all your hope in the things of this world. And here he's saying, here you continue to put all your hopes and your plans and your dreams and you worry about these things because that's where you invest all your time. That's where you plan and that's where your mind is constantly making the right decisions at the right time so that your future is secure. And Jesus is saying, that's the wrong order. He says, rather, seek after your heavenly Father, his kingdom, his righteousness. He knows what you need. That's why he tells you to seek after him first. Because when you seek after him and his knowledge and what he, what he knows and how he's made you, then you will understand. Then you won't worry because you know that he loves you. And you know that he will provide for you. In fact, he provides for you in his word so that you can make those proper decisions at the proper time. But we instead pour all our time and energy into our plans. And then we go to God and say, would you bless would you bless my college application? Can you get me into this school? Because if I can get into this school, God, then who knows what I could do? Or God, would you bless me and send me a wife so that I could be married? If you could do that, God, that would be great. Rather than seek after God's will, after his plans for our life, his kingdom first, his mission. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, after he's gone through this long excursus about what it is that Jesus has done and who, that we, are, who we are as his children, Paul says this, therefore, because of what God has done for you, because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made, because he has made you new, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. He addresses us as brothers and sisters. Paul is talking to those who are believers, who have been given faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying, brothers and sisters, I urge you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Remember the series we just went through a couple of months ago before Calvary, where we looked at the bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament. Never once did we consider any of those living sacrifices if you were sacrificed then, it was a dead thing. There's no such thing as a living sacrifice except for Jesus. Jesus is a living sacrifice. Once dead, now alive. Sacrificed for our sins. And because he was sacrificed for our sins, we are living sacrifices. Once dead, now alive. That's what Paul's reminding us. You are a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. You are already right with God. 
And in his sight, you are holy and pleasing just the way you are right now. Even if you make the wrong decision, you are holy and pleasing to God right now. Offer your bodies to him, not to your plans. Why do you do as the world does and offer your life as a sacrifice to your plans or the plans the world says you should make in your life to be successful, to be happy? We offer our lives for those plans. And it makes sense that we would worry and we would fret and we couldn't sleep at night because what if I make the wrong decision? Who will I be then? And Paul's saying, you are already holy and pleasing to God. You are already loved. Offer yourselves to him, the one who truly loves you, the one who truly knows what you need. And he goes on to say, so do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, he says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Just don't be conformed. Don't chase after these things. And then expect God to bless your plans. He says, no, offer your life to him. Allow him to direct your life. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is he talking about? He's talking about God's word. Let God's word transform your life, the way you think, the way you live, the choices you make. Let God's word inform the plans of your life. It's not what you believe is good, but what God's word said is good. It's not what you think is right, but what God's word says is right. It's letting God's word reorient, renew your thoughts and the way you make decisions. Paul says, if you will do that, if you will spend your life allowing this book, this word to transform your mind, you will then be able to test and approve what God's will is. You will be able to discern it. In this study, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby, he uses this example. In the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they have a counterfeit division, sort of like our secret services here in the United States, seeking out counterfeit currency. And they train their officers by teaching them the Canadian currency. They study this all the time. They study it, and they study it, and they study it. They spend no time whatsoever looking at counterfeit currency. None. All they do is they study the real currency. And they know it so well that even the best forgery they can spot because they know the real thing that well. He says that's what it is to know the word of God. Spend your time studying the true currency. Spend your time studying the truth. And so when you spot, a, when you see something that doesn't quite add up, you'll see it, you'll know it because you know the real word that well. You won't have to worry about whether or not I can spot it. You won't have to worry and study all the options. All we need to know is God's word. And when the lie is presented to us, we're like, ah, that just doesn't add up. It doesn't add up to his word. It doesn't make sense. That's not what God's word teaches. And if we're unsure, we've got the body. We should take this word 
And we should talk about it and chew on it together and help one another understand and discern, is that what God's word says? And how I apply that into my life so that I apply it correctly. Renew your mind by taking time to immerse yourself in this word. Become students of the word. Become teachers of the word. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and perfect will for your life. If we want to understand God's will for our life, his plan for our life, we need to become students and teachers of this book, immersing ourselves here, learning what it is that God teaches. But it's more than just that. It's more than just learning what God teaches. It's understanding why he teaches it. You know, growing up, I played baseball. I remember as a young kid that the old, older boys in the neighborhood used to play fuzzball across the street in this old high school, in this old school lot. It was a tennis ball, and you swang with a corkball bat. You guys know corkball? Probably don't play it up here. I know they played in St. Louis, the birthplace of baseball. They have, um, <laughs> I'm just saying. But you play with this, or you could play with a broom handle. You'd stand away and you'd throw it up against the wall and, you'd learn, and I could learn I had a good arm. And my, when my mom got married, my dad used to catch me in the backyard. And so when my kids were growing up, I put a baseball in their hand or a softball in their hand. I had two girls who both played softball. My son played baseball and I taught them how to play the game. I taught them how to play the game correctly, how to be a good loser and more importantly, how to be a good winner. but I also taught them how to take care of their things and how to take care of their glove. And every one of my kids could tell you what's wrong with this picture because that's not how you leave your glove. I was reminded of that the last couple of days. I went down to Bloomington, Indiana, where my oldest daughter lives. And she has three sons. I have three grandsons. And I know you're thinking, wow, Tony, you look too young to have three grandsons. <laughs> right? But I have three grandsons, and they're putting baseballs in their hands. And I got to watch a, a baseball game of my seven-year-old grandson and a t-ball game for my four-year-old grandson. And Thursday night, we're sitting in my daughter's kitchen, and I look out onto the patio. I look out on the deck, and I look out, and I'm, I see this glove just laying on the, on the patio. And I'm like, whose glove is that? And my daughter was like, no! She goes, I told Brian, Brian, don't let me leave this glove out here because my dad's coming. And if he sees that glove laying out there like that, he's going to have a fit. And sure enough, you saw it. And I said, well, you know, you take care of your glove, your glove takes care of you. And later that night, we're having dinner, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, I wonder if that glove's still out there. And I said, hey, is that glove still out on the deck? And Brian, my son-in-law, is like, I'll go get it. And he's like... <laughs> You see, I taught my kids growing up, you always put a ball in the mitt. You always put a ball, and now they have these great pocket protectors that keep it formed like this. You know, I didn't want them to take their things for granted. You know, growing up as a kid, I never had a new glove. The only new glove I've ever had is this glove right here. I bought it almost 20 years ago. And it's still in good shape today. I still keep a ball in it today, and it still has a pocket today. Because you take care of your glove, your glove takes care of you. You know, I told my daughter, I said, you know what, if you want to teach your children how to take care of their glove, you need to take care of your own glove. 
You know, as a teenager, if I'd have caught her or one of her siblings with a glove out laying in the rain like that or laying out on the deck like that, there would have been all kinds of excuses. Oh, well, you know, Alex left it out there. There would have been all kinds of excuses and there would have been lies and everything to make up because then as a youngster, it was like, dad just has these goofy rules when it comes to baseball. He's a nut when it comes to baseball and how you're supposed to keep your glove. You take care of your glove, your glove takes care of you. But now as a parent, I watch her teach her kids some of the things, same, same things that I've taught her. And, and she comes to an understanding of the rules that I had and the rules that we had as parents for our children. They start to see maybe some of the wisdom in those rules, but not just the wisdom, but the love in those rules. That we don't want them to take things for granted. That we teach them the things that are meaningful to us, and we do so from a heart of love because we love them. We want what's best for them. We don't want to see harm come to them, and we don't want to see them harm others. And so we teach them things, and we give them rules, and we have commands. But more importantly, we want them to know that they're loved. And parents, at some time, those of you who have young kids, at some time in the future, maybe in their 30s, they come to understand those rules and those laws. And they start to see the love behind the rule. They start to see the love in the commands, and that's what God desires for us. Is that yes, he has these rules, and he has commands for us, and ways for us to live, and he tells us to spend time in this word. Because when we do, we'll understand what God desires for our life. And more than that, we'll understand just how much he loves us. We'll start to understand the love that God has for us as we mature in our faith. Sometimes we're still that adolescent that bristles against the rules. He desires for us to have this mature faith, to spend time in this word. And if you'll spend time in this word, he tells us, that you will be like a tree planted by water. You will be fruitful in your life. And you will discover the heart of God, not just his rules, not just his commands, not just his teachings, but his love for you. You know, there's no better symbol of that love than the cross. And you can't go anywhere today without seeing the cross, or either around somebody's neck, or tattooed on their arm, or on their leg, or on their back. And I have to admit that I walk by these symbols every day and never pause once to think about what that means. I walk by that cross every day and I was reminded this week as I was preparing for this message, I take it for granted. I take it for granted what God has done for me. When I just walk by that cross, I never stop once to consider just how much he loves me. And I started thinking, well, maybe I see these every day because he's gently reminding me of that fact. That he doesn't want me to forget. That he hasn't forsaken me. That I am holy and pleasing in his sight. And that I should not take for granted this word, 
that cross. That he wants what's best for me. Not just in these big moments, but in the everyday life. Daily, Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Daily. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because it's him that reminds us of God's love. He said, I came to testify to the truth. Every day, God has an opportunity to speak into your life. In these big decisions, as any parent, as any father would want to, certainly speak into these events. Speak into the choices that you make. But not just in these choices, but in the everyday, mundane areas of your life. If we cannot learn to hear his voice in the everyday, we'll never hear his voice in those big days. David gives us this beautiful picture of God and what he thinks of us and how much he cares for us in Psalm 139. David says these words, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If they make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. David gives us this picture of, of our Heavenly Father who's with us every step of our life. And he wants to guide those steps. He wants to inform those steps as a loving father would. And he's there every day to remind us that even when you make poor choices, even when you make bad decisions, he's still there. Even if you run away from him, he's still there. Jesus tells us, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. God has a plan for your life. And the picture that I get from Scripture is that he so desperately wants you to discover it. And he's laid it out in the pages of this book. And so I ask you this morning, don't take it for granted. Don't just leave it laying around. Pick it up and read it and use it and discover God's plan for your life. God's plan for your life today, in the everyday. He wants to direct your steps and he knows the steps that you need to take. Jeremiah reminds us, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. But see, our tendency is to focus on the plans rather than the planner. And Jesus reminds us today that we should take time to get to know the planner because he is the one that knows the steps that we need to take. Every day is an opportunity to get to know him better, to mature in our faith, to understand his plans, but more importantly, to understand the love that he has for you. You don't have to worry 
You don't have to worry about these things and chase after the things of this life. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them, and he longs to guide you in every step of the way. But he calls you to come and spend time with him so that you can learn the love of the Father, so that you could come to know the plan that he has for your life. My prayer this morning is that you would not take this word for granted, that you would spend the rest of your life, every day of your life, with this book, becoming a student and a teacher of this book, and then pass this book along to the next generation so that their children and their children and their children will tell their children of the love of God and the plans that he has for their lives. May we never take for granted his word. May we never take for granted the love of God. I pray that for all of you for Jesus' sake. Amen.